was uh, beautiful to, to be able to sing that uh, with you uh, as we gather uh, week in and week out uh, to sing praise and to give glory to Christ. Uh, but uh, we do that week in and week out, but 2020 sure has been an interesting year. How many of our plans were changed in 2020, right? Uh, you may have planned on graduating from high school or college uh, and had your uh, plans adjusted. Maybe you didn't even have a graduation. You might have planned to, to purchase a new home. You might have planned to, to change jobs or to, to start uh, a new spiritual discipline or a new hobby. You may have had plans to go on vacation, something that you may have been looking forward to, maybe to, to visit family or to see a new place. Uh, you might have had plans just to have a normal year, right? Uh, and all of that was on track for about 10 weeks uh, into 2020, and then uh, everything was derailed. And I almost feel like this Sunday morning uh, is a great example of that, where uh, yesterday, uh, late in the evening, I got a flurry of text messages uh, concerning uh, a whole bunch of six people being uh, scheduled to serve this morning in children's ministry and what we should do. Uh, and I was also exchanging uh, text messages with Daniel, uh, I think it was yeah, late Friday night, uh, and uh, volunteering him for service much the way that uh, Simon of Cyrene was volunteered by the Roman soldiers uh, to help Jesus carry the cross uh, to the crucifixion. But uh, no, we are, uh, we are uh, living out uh, one of the... Uh, the additional beatitudes that we've talked about much in our church planting experience, uh, one of our own making that uh, blessed are the flexible, uh, for they shall bend but not break. Uh, and I think that is very much uh, what the Lord is uh, teaching us uh, in 2020 uh, and what we all get to practice week in and week out uh, as uh, COVID protocols continue to abound uh, in our state and in our nation. And uh, And nobody really would have been able to to call uh, this virus. No, nobody would have seen it coming ahead of time. In the investment world, this is what is known as a black swan event, uh, an event that nobody could forecast or see coming. It has come upon us and uh, has long-lasting results. There's no way that we would have been able to predict at the beginning of this year uh, that a virus was coming that would, that would lead to the closure of stores and schools and theaters and government agencies and, and so much more. Uh, for months and months uh, at a time. Uh, but this whole year, uh, I feel like, has been teaching us the truths of uh, a couple of verses in Proverbs. Proverbs 16:9 says, the, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We make our plans, but ultimately what will come to pass uh, is what the Lord has ordained and wants to pass. Proverbs 19:21 says something similar. It says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And if you are anything like me, there are probably times this year where you were confused by all that was taking place. Uh, and if you're also like me, there may have been moments, and it's okay to acknowledge this, there may have been moments where you were a little bit upset that your plans got overthrown. You might have been uh upset with God about how your year unfolded, right? You had your plans, but God said, well, I'm going to take this in a different direction. And oftentimes we value our plans, our 
desires, what we want, what we hope for, what we dream about. Oftentimes we elevate those uh, above God's plans, above what God wants. We don't so much want God's will to be done, we want our will to be done. And oftentimes we, we think we know what God's will should be. God, this is what should be happening in my life, not this over here. This is where I should be in life. This is what I should be experiencing rather than the trials that you currently have me in. But God knows best. And His plans will rule the day. And 2020 is a reminder of that. And as we will see this morning, we are called to follow and submit to God's plan. Uh, To do that joyfully, with contentment, with patience. Uh, and this morning, as we as we jump back into the Gospel of John, right where we left off, we're going to be looking at the beginning of John chapter 7. And the events of John chapter 6, uh, what we wrapped up before the, the summer, we started our series on the church. Uh, we wrapped up John chapter 6, and John chapter 6 uh, took place... Uh, during the time of the Jewish Passover. We see that in chapter 6, verse 4. And the events of John chapter 7 that we're going to jump into this morning take place about six months after that, uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Passover uh, is a a feast that takes place in the spring, in March or in April, and the Feast of Tabernacles is a feast uh, for the fall uh, in September and October. Uh, And similar to what we've seen in John chapters uh, 3 through 6, we're we're going to see a a central event uh, that most of the the dialogue and action in the the chapter is going to be centered around. This has kind of been uh, the theme or the pattern in John's gospel. Uh, As as he gives us the biography of Jesus, he he doesn't talk about as many occasions in the life of Christ as the other gospel writers do. Uh, but John looks at very few occasions, uh, but he goes into great detail about what takes place. Uh, we saw that uh, even back in John chapter 2. And, and John usually centers uh, the, the action around one of the Jewish feasts. John chapter 2, verse 13, we're told that it's a, a Passover, and Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. Uh, and the people see this and they begin to believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in them. And then uh, there's a long conversation that Jesus has with uh, the leader of among the Pharisees, the teacher in Israel, a man named Nicodemus. Then John chapter 4, there, there's no feast in the background, but there's a central conversation with a Samaritan woman uh, at a well. Then John chapter 5, it's an unnamed feast of the Jews, uh, but a... a a paralyzed man is healed, and then there's a long conversation uh, between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And then as we saw in John chapter 6, connected to the Passover, and th- there's a miracle that is performed, that Jesus feeds the, the 5,000, as we commonly know, uh, but uh, the, the reality of those numbers is it was closer to probably 20,000 people that Jesus fed that day. And then the rest of the chapter is centered on Jesus' teaching uh, at the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, and now when we, when we come to John chapter 7, we're entering into uh, a much larger portion that's really going to, uh, to go all the way into John chapter 10, verse 21. 
Okay, so we have to see these events uh, are all connected together. John 7 and 8 uh, probably take place uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, what we're going to see uh, this morning is there's a, there's a prelude uh, leading up to the feast. And then if you look at verse 14, uh, we jump to the middle of the feast. And if you look at verse 37, we're at the end of the feast. Then at the, the beginning of John chapter 8, there's kind of a, an interlude, and we'll talk more about this when we get there. Uh, but there's the, the, the story of the woman caught in adultery and how Jesus responds. And then John chapter 8, verse 12, resumes on that last day of the feast and begins what is known as the, the light of the world discourse, where, where Jesus is going to teach uh, on the final day of the feast about who he is. And he's going to be interacting with the Jewish leaders. Uh, and then... Chapter 9 is a whole unit in and of itself, but it probably takes place uh, either at the feast or within a, a two-month period of time that Jesus spent uh, at Jerusalem uh, in between uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication, uh, because the Feast of Dedication is what we're going to see in chapter 10, verse 22, uh, which is uh, the, the feast that we commonly know as Hanukkah. And it's actually being celebrated this week uh, by the Jews. Uh, and so what we're going to, to see uh, is this, this long narrative uh, beginning here. Uh, and then there, there's going to be one final Passover uh, that we're going to see in John chapter 11, verse 55. Uh, and that's uh, the final Passover of Jesus' life. So as we come to John chapter 7, we have to keep in mind that we are now talking and looking at the final six months of Jesus' life and ministry here on the earth. This is getting down to his final time with his disciples. Uh, and what we're going to look at today is the very beginning of uh, this uh, section of Scripture, John chapter 7. Uh, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 10, which is going to record for us uh, an interaction that Jesus has with his brothers. Not too many of those recorded in Scripture, but that's what I want to look at uh, this morning. So if you would read along with me, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 10. John writes, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about, about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. And so as his brothers were preparing to, to travel to Jerusalem for this feast, they were going to go from Galilee down to Jerusalem. 
they urged Jesus to, to come with them. And what the brothers wanted Jesus to do is to use the feast as a publicity opportunity. To win back some of the disciples who had stopped following him after the way Jesus had preached in John chapter 6 uh, at the Passover. But Jesus remained. He disregarded the, the wisdom of his brothers. Uh, and what we're going to see is that Jesus acted and lived not according to the, the timetable and the plan of his brothers, not according to his own timetable and his own plan, but he lived and acted according to the plan of God the Father. And in this passage, we're going to see the value of trusting in and following the plan of our Heavenly Father rather than following our own wisdom or the wisdom of the world around us. And as these events unfold, we're going to see three certainties about God's plan. And if we know them, if we are convinced of them, if we embrace them in faith, that they will help us to submit to God's plan rather than elevating and worshiping our own plans. That we will truly live, thy will be done, rather than my will be done. So we're going to look at these three certainties. And the first one is found in verse 1. And you could state it this way, that the world's hostility is a part of God's plan. The world's hostility is part of God's plan. What we see in verse 1 is that uh, in that six-month time, uh, after Jesus uh, was preaching at the time of the the Passover in Galilee, between then and now, as the, the Feast of Tabernacles approached, Jesus was, was going about, kind of as an itinerant uh, rabbi, teaching uh, and preaching and performing miracles in Galilee. And the reason that he was staying in Galilee is because that the Jews, meaning the, the Jewish leaders uh, in Jerusalem, they, they were looking for an opportunity to kill him. They, they were seeking and, and searching They were not playing around at this. They they were very serious in their hatred of Jesus. Uh, And what we see here is the growing theme in John's gospel uh, of a hatred toward Christ uh, and a hatred toward anyone who will align themselves with Christ. We saw this beginning in, in John chapter 5, verse 18. We saw that the Jewish leaders had come to the point where they desired to kill Jesus. And if you, if you just turn back a couple pages and look at that verse, it says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there's this, this growing hostility Uh, And their hostility towards Jesus uh, spilled over towards anyone who would even think about calling him the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, We're going to see this in in this very chapter. If you look at verse 13, we'll look at this next week. about What were people saying about Jesus at the feast? Everyone expected him to be there. uh, And they're saying, what do you think about him? Verse 13 says, yet no one for fear of the Jews, was speaking openly about Christ. If you, if you speak about him, you're going to be in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Chapter 9, verse 22, uh, after the, the man who was born blind was healed, 
the Pharisees go and do an investigation, and they go and speak to uh, the young man's parents. And they say, well, we know that he was born blind, but we don't know anything other than that. Don't ask us. Go talk to him. He's of age. Uh, And John chapter 9, verse 22 says that his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That's the kind of fear that was beginning to, to permeate Jerusalem and Judea. And then John chapter 11, verses 12 to 16, kind of in the, the narrative of uh, Lazarus going to be raised by Christ, we're in this portion of the narrative where Lazarus has died and Jesus is just about to go and, and resurrect him. And this is what John chapter 11, verses 12 to 16 say. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Jesus had just said, Lazarus is asleep. And then verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And, and so Thomas, I don't like to call him doubting Thomas. He's just slow to believe Thomas. That's a little bit framed a little bit differently. Uh, but slow to believe Thomas says this to his fellow disciples. He says, let us go also that we may die with him. So, so what was Thomas's expectation? If we go to where Lazarus is, we're going to die. Because the Jewish leaders are going to, to seize Jesus and they're going to kill him. And if we're with him, that doesn't bode well for us. This is the, the climate there in Israel. And we, and we have to understand that this hostility... From the world is a part of God's plan. I've emphasized this this quite a bit in the last few weeks and months as we've talked about uh, kind of things in our own culture, in our own time, as we've looked at what the church is called to be and do. I, I've said this repeatedly, but it it is worthy of being repeated often. It is a truth that we need to understand and embrace. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Indeed, all, that's an exact number, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We need to, to be convinced of that. But we also need to be convinced that the hostility of the world still serves a purpose in God's plan. The hostility of the world doesn't mean that God's plan has gone astray. That we, we can throw our hands up in, uh, in despair and say, well, we've lost all hope because the world is against us. And that is not our response. Indeed, the hostility from the world is intended to be an instrument in God's hand to shape us and conform us into the image of Christ. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 say this, Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But then Paul continues, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces 
endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And the hostility of the world serves a purpose in that it lessens our love for this world and the things of this life. One of the Puritans, Matthew Mead, put it this way. He uses the illustration that that a Christian is going to be weaned off of the world in the same way that a young infant is going to be weaned away from their mother. And he says this. He says, when God weans a soul from the world, he makes the earthly bitter by some affliction or disappointment. And thus he leads the soul to look out for a more pure and lasting satisfaction in Christ. In times of outward prosperity, we are full of the world and the Lord can find no room in our hearts. Present comforts have taken possession and thrust him out. But the hostility from the world serves a purpose in God's plan to to dull our affections for the things in this life. We we get disappointed by the things in this life. All of those hopes and dreams that we had for 2020 that were disrupted. What did that cause us to yearn for more? Hopefully not for those things. Hopefully all of our shattered plans and dreams showed us the unworthiness of those earthly things. That our thoughts and our affections should not be focused so much upon them, but upon God. That's what suffering, that's what trials, that's what the world's hostility does. It sharpens our affections for Christ and His heavenly kingdom. And again, if the world was hostile toward our Lord... We need to understand that it's going to be hostile towards us, toward anyone who follows him. That's the first certainty that we see concerning God's plan here in this passage. But but then secondly, what we see in verses 2 through 5 is that the world's wisdom is contrary to God's plan. We can be certain that the world's hostility is a part of God's plan and the world's wisdom is contrary to his plan. Let's read those verses together. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, and so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So what we see in these verses, again, is this time frame of uh, the Feast of Booths, or uh, it's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ingathering. Uh, And it was uh, to be a reminder of God's provision, uh, the way that He cared for and provided for the Israelites for 40 years uh, in the wilderness. Uh, And so in remembrance of God's provision in those wandering years, what the Israelites were to do is for for seven days they were to live in booths or tabernacles or little tents that they made. Uh, They were to to sleep outside under the stars. Because if you make a tent, it's not going to be that good of a tent, right? Uh, But uh, 
th- that's what they were commanded to do. So those in the, in the countryside would go and build a tabernacle out, outside of their, their house. Those in the cities would, would go up to their flat rooftop or to their courtyard, uh, and they would build a little makeshift tent, and they were to sleep in them for seven days to remember what God had done and how he had provided for their ancestors. And then uh, on the eighth and final day of the feast, there was a solemn assembly, a day of remembrance that was treated as a Sabbath, where they would recount all that the Lord had done. And uh, throughout the feast, there were different rituals associated uh, that involved water and the the lighting of lamps. Uh, And Jesus is going to to allude to those rituals, as we're going to see later on in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, as Jesus teaches, he's going to, to point to those rituals to illustrate spiritual truths about himself. And the Jewish historian Josephus has said that this was the favorite feast of the Jews. Think of what our culture, uh, how we respond to, I would say, our, our favorite holiday, just approaching very rapidly, of what we do in preparation for, to celebrate Christmas. Now, our culture sometimes uh, celebrates it in a, in a secular way, and we're called to, to celebrate in a, in a Christian way. But just think of the anticipation that builds, and it would have been the same way with this feast of the Jews. It was their favorite. And since this was one of the, the three annual feasts that all of the Jewish men were supposed to, to go to Jerusalem for, there would have been a very large caravan going from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south. There would have been a traffic jam on the highway. Right? All the camels, uh, all, all the, the horses and, and mules carrying everybody down. It would have been packed. And what the brothers are saying is, Jesus, let us give you some wisdom. This is a good opportunity for you to use this situation to advance your cause. Jesus, you need some publicity. That's what they're saying. This has not been good. You've been losing a lot of followers. All of those disciples, man, you preached that really bad sermon back at Passover, and all of your disciples started leaving. That's the mindset that his brothers have. If you look back with me, the end of John chapter 6, verses 60 and 61, says when many of his disciples heard it, about what he had just said they said this is a hard saying who can listen to it but jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this said to them do you take offense at this and if you jump down to verse 66 after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them with him ultimately jesus turns to the twelve are you, are you guys going to go also? And I love Peter's response. He says, Jesus, where else will we go? You alone have truth. But the brothers in this passage are saying, hey, you need to go down to the feast and you need to perform miracles to win back these disciples who have left you behind. And then in verse 4, we, we see... Th- the, the logic of the, the brother's thinking. He said, hey, Jesus, if you want to be a public figure, you can't be private. Now, if you want to be a public figure, if you want to be a leader, if you're going to claim to be the Messiah, 
You got to be seen. You got to do things. If you're going to be a celebrity, you can't disappear from public life. That's very much how our our own world works. Uh, the the cultural creation engine of Hollywood has created this system to help celebrities always be in the news cycle. Right? Have you ever ever uh, been in the the grocery uh, checkout aisle and look at the headlines? Uh, on the, the the tabloid magazines, you're like, why do why does any of this need to be printed? None of this really matters. Uh, with, with everything that you that you see on display there, uh, and and much of this uh, cultural creation engine of Hollywood, uh, the the whole system is built. You know, entire TV channels and uh, talk show circuits, all of these things is intended to keep celebrities' names in the news. Right? That's why all of these mundane and minute details are reported on. Because they have to, to keep their name prominent. If you drop out of the public's eye for too long, you become forgotten. And then eventually, those celebrity news channels, well, what happened to this celebrity? You're like, I don't know, because I forgot about him. Uh, but, but the brothers are saying, Jesus, you don't want that to happen to you. You need to go down and perform miracles and, and reveal yourself. That's the counsel and the wisdom of Jesus' half-brothers here. And we're told in verse 5, John makes a point of this, is for not even his brothers believed in him. So John clarifies, his brothers did not believe, but then you're like, but wait a second. They just said, Jesus, go perform miracles. So they believe something about him, right? They, they believe that he has some type of a power to, to, to do miraculous acts. But here's the key. They believe in Jesus' power, but they don't believe in His person or in His mission to save sinners. And so even within that, we see what type of faith is most important. We don't just believe nice things about Jesus. We don't just believe that He was a miracle worker or a good teacher. We must believe in Him as the Son of God who was sent to live and die for sinners. That is what saving faith consists of. What we see here, John mentions this to, to point out that this is worldly wisdom. This is wisdom of and from the world because at this point in time, the brothers are not believers. Now, they are still trapped in the world system, the world of darkness that has been mentioned so frequently in John's gospel. Now, and the counsel of the brothers here echoes the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. Over and over again, during those 40 days when Christ was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, Satan was constantly appealing to him, tempting him to reveal himself before he got to the cross. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, Satan said to, to Christ, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So what Satan wanted Christ to do is, hey, go to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and just throw yourself off and let the angels save you. 
Because what would have happened? Jesus would have been revealed as the Messiah in that way. But he would bypass the cross. He would have been embraced uh, immediately without fulfilling his saving mission. And what the brothers of Jesus are counseling here is to, hey, yeah, do that same thing. Win popularity by miraculous acts. And, but those are, those are easy to get behind. Right? It's easy to get behind uh, Jesus creating food for thousands of people. Right? That's, why the, that's why the crowds flocked to him in John chapter 6. They, they liked having their bellies full. But they didn't want him. And it was always the teaching of Christ that, that would turn people away from him. The, the miracles would attract them. And then he would, he would open his mouth and teach. And they're like, well, I don't know if I want that. It's the teaching of Christ that is so divisive. And the brothers here are counseling him, just, just bypass that. Just reveal yourself in glory. And what the temptation is for Jesus, what they're alluding to is, hey, just take the path of the crown rather than the path of the cross. Reveal your glory. Seize power now. They do not understand that Christ had to first suffer the agony of the cross so that he could save sinners. That's why Jesus came. But the brothers don't understand that. They just want publicity. They're just counseling from a worldly perspective. But Christ understood his mission. Even though so few, or really all of his disciples, misunderstood it. You think to, to Luke 24, when Jesus comes alongside the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they don't recognize him, and they're really discouraged because they had put their hopes in Jesus, and then they saw him murdered. And so they're really down. So they're talking to Jesus without knowing it's him, like, man, are you, are you the only one who hasn't known what's going on here? Well, we had put all of our hope in Christ, and then he died. He, the, the Romans crucified him. So now what do we do? And this is what it said Jesus said to them. It says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Because was it not necessary, meaning it had to happen, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus had to suffer before he entered into glory. He could not seize the crown before he endured the cross. And here's what's key for us to to remember. The same is going to be true for us. We are not going to, to receive the crown before we suffer. We, we must suffer. We, we must endure. And then we will enter into glory. And we have to be wary. We, we have to watch out for the temptations of this world that falsely pose as wisdom. Right? Exactly what uh, the brother's counsel is here. Hey, Jesus, just go this easy route. Let's go the the quick and the fast route rather than what you have planned. Such words of false wisdom that encourage us to seek the easy path 
the wide path that everyone else in the world is, is traveling down. But man, if you go that way, things are going to be difficult. But we have to remember, what did Jesus say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We have to watch out for, for that worldly counsel of, hey, this is the way everyone else is going. Uh, as Christians, if we're not going the opposite direction, uh, if, if we're just going with the flow of everyone else, that should be an alarm in our hearts and minds. We are called to be countercultural, right? To swim upstream, to follow the narrow path, not the, the wide path that leads to destruction. And we have to, to understand that, that the counsel of the world is always going to be contrary to God's plan. And you can pretty much look uh, at everything that the world is proclaiming right now. And get think of it this way. Whatever the world is, is saying, if you did the exact opposite, you can find what the Bible says. It's a remarkable thing. Uh, the exact opposite. of It uh, doesn't matter what... Uh, who you marry or what marriage is about. Uh, it's all just all about love. And if you look to Scripture, it says, no, marriage is very intentional. Uh, marriage is a picture of Christ and His church. Uh, and it has a much more significant meaning than what the world is saying. And anything that the world is proclaiming, you flip it on its head, and you're going to probably land on something that the Bible uh, teaches very clearly. But again, that's just... Uh, what the world does. Worldly wisdom is contrary to God and His plan because worldly wisdom exalts self. Right? That's what the brothers are saying. Jesus, this is what's best for you. This is what you should do. And we can be certain that, that worldly wisdom is going to be contrary to God's plan. We can be certain that the world's hostility is a part of God's plan. But then there's a, a third and final certainty that we see in this passage. In verses 6 through 10, you can put it this way, that, that the faithful, those who are faithful, will delight in submitting to God's plan. Look with me at verses 6 through 10 and, and see how Jesus responds to this worldly wisdom from his brothers. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. As you go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And you may read those words and be a little bit confused. You're like, but wait a second. Jesus said, I'm not going. And then what did he do? He went up. So how are we to make sense of that? Right? Is Jesus lying here? Did, did Jesus make a mistake? Did he, did he deceive and mislead? Well, I think that the key to understanding all of this is Rightly understanding what Jesus says in verse 6. Now, there are 
There are three Greek words uh, that are used to communicate the idea of time. One of them, uh, chronos, is where we get our, ta- our word for chronograph. You're probably familiar with that. And it speaks of the idea of a, of a general period of time, uh, an extended period of time. Then there's another Greek word that is translated into an English word, uh, aura, right? Uh, it's where we get our word hour. Uh, and uh, that speaks of a very specific point in time, a decisive time, and oftentimes uh, with an idea of uh, a preordained or predestined time. Uh, and in John's Gospel, that word hour is going to be referred to over and over again to speak of the cross of Christ. If you turn over to John chapter 8, verse 20, it says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And over and over again uh, in John's gospel, hour points to the time of Jesus' arrest uh, and uh, crucifixion. Uh, And so, but John here uses a different word, or Jesus uses a different word here. Uh, A third Greek word called kairos. Uh, which refers to the right or the opportune moment in time. Uh, And this word is going to be used here, and it's going to be used uh, again uh, later in this passage. Uh, And so what Jesus is saying is this is not the right moment for me to go to the feast. Uh, And this is the only time, uh, or really there's one other occasion in John's Gospel that it's mentioned, but that verse that uh, is... uh, is not in the best manuscript, so it's a whole other discussion. But really, this is the only occasion where this Greek word is used in John's Gospel. And I think that's very intentional uh, to distinguish it uh, from the, the hour, the, the time of the cross, and the general period of time. And so what Jesus is saying to his brothers is this is not the right moment in time. This is not when I am supposed to go up to the feast. But then in going up later on, uh, you're like, well, how do we make sense of that? Well, Jesus is, is, is not rejecting or saying, I'm never going to go up to the feast. What he's rejecting is the counsel of the brothers uh, and saying, hey, go up right now with the huge caravan. Go up with the crowds uh, and enter into Jerusalem. And think about what that would have done if Jesus had entered in publicly uh, into Jerusalem uh, with a crowd because he would have been walking with all of those people, and there's no way for him to to hide himself in that crowd. And he would have been entering Jerusalem uh, at the head of a throng of people. If you think back, even in John chapter 6, before Jesus preached, just after he performed the miracle, they're like, we're going to make this guy king. This is the Messiah. He's going to lead us to rebel against Rome. He's going to make all things right. And Jesus left because he's like, "I, I can't become king in that way. All of this goes uh, in saying this is not the right time uh, for Jesus to go uh, up to the feast. And then uh, in verse 7, or at the end of verse 6, Jesus makes a a contrast between himself and his brothers. He says, hey, this is not the time for me to go, but your time is is always here. It's always present. You can go up whenever you want. Uh, He he says it doesn't really matter uh, when the brothers go up. But it does matter when he goes up. And uh, then in verse 7, Jesus explains why it matters for him, but it doesn't matter for them. He says, uh, the world does not hate you. 
right? He says, because the brothers are still in the world and the world does not hate its own. He just says, hey, it doesn't matter when you go up. The world doesn't hate you, but, kind of contrast, how does the world feel about Jesus? Jesus is emphatically says, but me, the world hates. That's what he says here. The world doesn't hate you, brothers, but it hates me. And then Jesus explains why the world is hostile to him. It's not because he performed miracles, but because, what did he do? He spoke out against the deeds of the world. Again, it's always Jesus' teaching that offends people, that is divisive. It says Jesus speaks and proclaims, testifies that the works of the world are evil. And ultimately, what Jesus is saying here, the brothers are saying, hey, you need to go up and, and become popular. And Jesus turns that on and said, no, really, he says, I'm never going to be popular. The destiny of Jesus is not for popularity, it's for animosity. The, the world hates him. That's what he is saying. And so he tells his brother to go up without him. He says he's not going to go to his, the feast because the, the time has not yet come. It has not yet been fulfilled. And again, you can, you can imagine what it would have been if, if Jesus enters into Jerusalem. There's going to be an immediate conflict between him and the, the Pharisees, the, the, the Jewish leaders. And again, since we're looking at the, the last six months of Jesus' life, six months from now, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem uh, publicly, the time of the Passover, within a week from him entering into Jerusalem, he's been murdered. That's why Jesus is saying, I'm not going to go up publicly right now. This is not the time for that. So Jesus is going to go up privately, hidden in secret. So he stays behind in, in Galilee briefly, and then ultimately, now that the time is right, and he goes up to the feast. But all of that, Jesus is living and viewing life not according to his own timetable. Not according to, to his plans for popularity, but according to God's plans. And God has a, a very unique relationship with time. God, God has a plan and God views time very differently than we view time. God... Uh, is outside of time. He's not bound by time. You can think of it this way. Uh, if we were to, to follow a, a river, okay, there would be, be times where the, the river's flowing out of the mountains. And if we're there uh, on a, a, a kayak uh, traveling down that river, uh, initially we would see the mountains one day, and the next day uh, we may see forests, and then the day after that we may see uh, plains, and the day after that we may enter into the ocean that it flows into, right? So, so the person on the kayak is seeing things one day at a time uh, and only one setting at a time. But uh, a pilot who's a couple miles up in the air, how are they going to view that same river? They're going to see the, the flow of the river and they're going to see all of those different landscapes all at once. They see the mountains and the forest and the plains and the sea in one viewing. And that is how God views time. He sees all of those things, all of those different moments, 
all together. And we view time as like that person in the kayak. One day at a time, one setting at a time, uh, limited in its scope. We, and we always want to know what's just around the river bend, right? To, to, to point to Pocahontas. Uh, I won't sing it for you, but uh, you can go look it up. Uh, but that idea of, yeah, what is going to happen next? Uh, and what we are called to, to do as those who are called to be faithful in Christ is to rest and to paddle by faith wherever we are in the river. We don't know what's coming up ahead, but we know, okay, God, what is it you want me to do right now? God knows the whole path of the river, but we don't. And oftentimes, we want to know, but, but we can't. We have to keep rowing in faith. And what we see here is that Jesus is the perfect example of the life of faith. So Jesus is a lot more than just an example to us. But he is certainly not less than that. He is the perfect example that we are called to follow. And when we look at him, we see what it looks like to live in full submission to God the Father. We see what it looks like to live according to God's plan rather than our own plan. Jesus lived every moment of his life in submission to the plan of God the Father. John 6, 38, Jesus said this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And you and I are called to do the same. You and I are commanded to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You and I are commanded to deny ourselves. What does it mean to deny ourselves? We say no. We say no to who? Ourselves. That's not, not usually our favorite word. We're called to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Jesus. We are to commit ourselves to living according to God's plan. But what does that mean? Well, it means that we commit ourselves to living according to God's word. And that's where God's plan is revealed to us. It means that, that we commit ourselves, we acknowledge that we should have a stronger affection for God's will than for our own. Again, I speak of the, the oughts there. It should be that way. But is it always that way? No. So what do we do in those moments? Well, we're called to submit our will to his. So what should be, we say, okay, Lord, I'm not that place right now. This is what I want to do, Lord, but I know this is what you're calling me to do. We turn to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, help me to, to redirect my affections. Help me to, to make a, a wise and God-exalting decision here rather than following in my own desires and my own will. Living according to God's plan means that we prefer His will over our own. And we really live out, Lord, Your will be done. We don't just pray it, we, we live it. And we pray it. That's what we see in Jesus in this passage. A perfect submission to the plan and timing of God. And Christ is our example in this. And that same submission to God and contentment in His will is what we are commanded to imitate each and every day. And that's the, the third certainty that we see about 
God's plan in this passage. We see the hostility of the world is a part of God's plan. We see that the wisdom of the world is contrary to God's plan. But we also see that those who are faithful will delight in submitting to God's plan. That we will delight in following Christ and not doing what we want to do, but what Christ is calling us to do. And we need to begin to think and view things rather than just viewing it as this is what I want to do. But we need to to try and have that, that big picture perspective. Rather than viewing things as that person in the kayak, we need to try and view things as the person in the airplane. So what is God doing here? What is he calling me to do? How is he calling me to respond? Uh, and there are, there are so many things in life that we often miss because we are limited in our perspective. We only look at things in a particular way. Uh, we may be uh, looking at uh, the wings of a, of a hummingbird, uh, and we know that they're moving, but what do we actually see? Just a, a blur. Right? So sometimes things move too fast for us to really comprehend, and sometimes things move too slow for us to really take notice of. Right? Uh, the, the, the flower in, in your kitchen right now, do, do you sit and watch it grow? You sit there staring? Why don't you do that? Because it grows really, really slowly. Right? And you'd be sitting there doing nothing for, for months on end. Uh, but is it growing all the time? Absolutely. Uh, and sometimes if we adjust our perspective, if you, if you were to film each of those events, if you were to, to film a, a hummingbird... You, you could do a, a slow-mo uh, and then begin to, to really see what's taking place and see the beauty of God's creation in that hummingbird, right? And you begin to, to see and understand what's really taking place by, by re- reflecting and, and looking, taking a new perspective. Uh, in the same way with that, that flower growing in your kitchen, if you were to do a time-lapse photo over the course of months, uh, you could see in just a few moments how much transformation takes place in that little flower and what it blossoms into. That's what we need to, to labor to build is a, is a new perspective, a different way of looking at things. Not just what is it that I want in my circumstance or my situation, but really looking in, and thinking about and then acting upon what is it that God is calling me to do in this time and, and in this occasion. Living according to God's plan rather than our own. And we are called to walk in faith. Each and every moment to trust in God's power, to trust in God's wisdom, and to trust in God's love. And then to submit ourselves to Him, just as Christ did. And may we follow God's plan for our lives. Expecting Him to use the world's hostility as an instrument in His hand. Expecting Him uh, to, uh, or expecting the world to tempt us with false wisdom. Say, hey, just go do this. Just follow the easy path. And also being certain that what we are called to do is to submit ourselves to the plan of God because that is infinitely greater than our own plans and our own purposes. That is how we are called to live each and every day, each and every moment. And we see that in the life of Christ. And may we go and emulate him walking in faith. Amen? Let's pray.